and I, I, I write a newsletter on psychedelics and I, and I wrote in our, like one of the issues on this, cause I really think it's so true. I'm like, how can you be a neuroscientist? How can you study the brain and consciousness and mind and not be familiar with those kinds of states? Right. Like you're looking at one kind of state, everyday consciousness and saying, I'm going to define human experience. It's, it's, it's like, I'm going to define like weather and only look at sunny days. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Mona Sabani, PhD, to discuss her book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. Mona discusses her journey from what she describes as the religion of scientific materialism to accepting a spiritual paradigm, the truth of psi phenomena, and the value of psychedelics in understanding consciousness. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen or view podcasts. And please consider sharing it with friends and family. Your support is truly appreciated. Mona Sabani, PhD, is a cognitive neuroscientist. A former research scientist at the University of Southern California, she holds a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Southern California and completed a postdoctorate fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She was also a scholar with the Sachs Institute for Mental Health, Law, Policy, and Ethics, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, Vox, and other media outlets. Mona, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, well, thank you. I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you. I, I loved your book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, A Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe. Um, yeah, if title ever. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wanted to do the whole title. I wanted to do that subtitle as well, because I think that gives more of what the I book agree. is. Yeah. And, you know, I've, interviewed well over 50 people now the podcast is still in its infancy and no disrespect to any of my other guests but if i've had anyone on that really is a rebel spirit i think it might be you <laughs> <laughs> oh that makes my soul happy <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I thought maybe I would start the conversation by asking you so how do you feel being a heretic feels good yeah. I like it. I was born to be a heretic. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, it, but you are in some ways. The book is this journey that you take from being a, I mean, you're still a scientist, but moving from a rejection of anything sort of spiritual to accepting spirituality. <laughs> and you, and I want to talk to you about this because that is the book. And I thought the place that we could begin is with your scientific background, because you write that science was your religion. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I was never very spiritual or religious to begin with. And, and then I became anti-spirituality and anti-religion over time, just, uh, I don't know, through society, through personal experiences or whatnot. And then finally, with my scientific training, they really drill it out of you. And especially in neuroscience, as I talk about in the book, it's it's a lot of, you know, all meaning and coincidence and anything that you want to decipher in that way is is all from your brain and that you can't trust your perceptions and your like the meaning that you derive is it's like good for you whatever whatever you want to do with that but it's not actual like there's no actual meaning out in the world mm. and i when i found i i studied neuroscience and physiology in undergrad and then and then got a phd in cognitive neuroscience and the more and more i learned about scientific thinking and methods and the way the world works or the way you know nature and biology work I think, I think you do become, you, you come to count on it 
and rely on it, it becomes the way that you make sense of the world. And it really changes the way you think. And you really start thinking in that way about everything. And that's been one of the interesting thing that, things for me on this journey has been the way that my thinking has changed and the way I analyze or think about the world has changed. And it's only by coming out of it that you can see how narrow it is. But when you're in it, you think it's the truth because that's what they tell you. And then also that's what our Western society, you know, recently too, there's been a huge emphasis on data-driven, evidence-based, science-backed. Like you see these this language everywhere as though you know, like science is the only way that we can find truth. Uh, and so you really come to believe and embody that. And when you're in it, you don't think it's religion. You think it's science. <laughs> you're like, this is the truth. This is the only way to the truth. But so that's why I say it's like science is my religion. And it's also, it is kind of a cult in the sense that you really aren't supposed to question it. And I mean, within the academy, we do question logistics, <laughs> like, oh, the way we publish papers is pretty crappy and whatever, but, but you don't, you don't ever question science, you know, right. unless you're having drinks and, <laughs> and people are being more honest, but yeah, so it really was kind of my religion. It was the way I made sense of the world is what I believed in. And, you know, I still think it's very useful. And of course, obviously it's been very useful for society and it's useful for, you know, logical, rational thinking, the deductive reasoning, it's all very helpful in your day to day, but it's just not the only thing that's helpful. Right. And this science religion, or I don't know if I want to say religion of science or however we want to refer to it, it seems that the primary dogma within it is this scientific materialism. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very much about the world is made of matter. It's physical. We can only count on things we can measure. And, and that is, and anything else that you want to, yeah, that's what I, so it is kind of that culty aspect comes in. If you try to talk about something in that academic context about things we can't measure, or we don't have explanations for, because then it's like, well, we can't measure that. So, or it's not real. It's not important. Yeah. So it's, it is scientific. Scientific materialism is the paradigm and to suggest otherwise is philosophy. It's not, it has no place in science. Right. Right. And I think that they need some philosophy. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, and this is one of the reasons it's one of my personal interests, and there's several ways into this that might deviate from the book a little bit, but one of my interests from a philosophical perspective is this question of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, you know, and, and this is why I've so been looking forward to speaking with you since you're a neuroscientist. And I, 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 I'm going to share something with you because I had a conversation once with a neuroscientist at UCLA. And the conversation was, I had participated in a sleep study because I have a tendency to have insomnia. And so I was all wired up and they were connecting everything, you know, everything was all connected up. And I was woken up by one of the nurses because one of the things on my head came loose and she came in and I spent the rest of the night angry because I had almost been asleep. And I was, I just spent the whole night just kind of like that. And I was wide awake when the nurse came in and the, you know, at the end of the sleep study. So when I got the results, they told me that I was waking myself up snoring. And so I asked, you know, so I called this neuroscientist who was the one who looked at the results and my background in philosophy kicked in because she, like I said, was saying that, well, no, you were waking yourself up snoring. I'm like, well, was there a recording of this? Because as far as I was concerned, I was awake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, we don't have any audio recordings of that. And I'm like, well, how do you know then I was asleep? How do you know then? Well, because all these signatures, according to the brain waves and everything is saying that this is what was going on. I'm like, but that's not my subjective experience of it. 
And so I think she got really aggravated, but eventually she admitted to me, you're right. We have no way of knowing what your subjective experience was. <laughs> but I, I mentioned that because it seems like with this scientific materialist perspective, the inner subjective experience is what is more often than not completely excluded from scientific data. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I've had this conversation with a lot of people lately, but it's, it's, and it's, sorry, I'm trying to think of how exactly, you're right though. Yes. And the reason is because we can't measure it <laughs> because right, right. we, we can measure it in terms of, we can make surveys and we can ask you, and that's how we measure subjective experience. But, but, you know, to capture, like, think about a survey with 15 questions, like, does that really capture your experience in a moment like how could it it really can't and you have to decide which one of the thousand variables of your experience we're going to measure and assume it's you know independent from other things or try to control as best we can we really can't measure it and there has been this emphasis in scientific materialism as I was talking about things that are physical like I mean I heard from some psychologists that were you know older trained in more like a previous generation that they were actually told if you can't measure it, it's not real. And, mm. and it's like, well, we, we can't measure our thoughts. Like yeah. we can't measure per, per, a subjective experience, but we know it's real. <laughs> That's yeah. what makes all of our reality. Right. So there is, there can be, I, I think in cognitive neuroscience, in my, in my field, which we're focused more on other things like personality and experience. Mm. I think we do focus more on it, but again, we're, we're using measures and stuff, right. uh, surveys, questionnaires, but we do like to talk to people and understand their experience because, because the brain data doesn't tell you anything. We don't know enough about the brain to look at a scan and say exactly what's going on. We're, right. you know, getting better at it, but nowhere near saying I can exactly map out your subjective experience. No, like you always have to have the person, you know, some sort of report of what they experienced and tie it back to, you have to know what was going on to tie it back to the brain data because we don't have it mapped out. And there's so much variation between people. Right. <laughs> there's right. just, right. there's just no way, but there is, there is a tendency. I think, you know, I just think honestly, scientists like to be smart and pretend like we know more than we do yeah <laughs> i think that is for most people actually not just scientists <laughs> that's true yeah yeah. Like, yeah i guess it's a kind of a human thing to do yeah. that yeah well i think in the book you mentioned that it often i think that the scientists will often see it as an attack on their ego in a sense yeah. when these things are brought up because they are so invested in this religion of science yeah and that, that's what it was for me i'm not saying that's what it is for everyone i was mm. speculating but it was definitely that for me mm. although i could not see it i would never see it that way because and that's why i called it a religion of science is because mm. What happens is you 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 adopt this worldview and then you tie up your ego and identity in it, but you're not aware that you're really doing that. And then you are, you know, you are science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and then you see anything that would seemingly question science, which you know, in in for old me would have been spirituality or believing in anything that we can't measure or prove or that, you know, evolutionary biology has told us was created for our comfort, but has no real validity in the real world. You see those things as threats to, to you, but you don't see it as a threat to your, you don't realize it's a threat to, until, until you have a crisis. Like I did <laughs> what you see it as a, it's a threat to truth or it's a threat to progress or it's a threat, yeah, to the direction we're supposed to be heading in in society, which is moving away from believing nonsense and moving towards, again, data-driven science-backed things. So you, you, in your mind, that's what it is. But in actuality, you know, it's when you really step back. Because so for me, it was when people would bring up things, spiritual things, or, or talk about religion, I would get like angry. Mm. You know, my, I would get, my blood pressure would go up. I would get hot. I would like not be able to, you know, I was like aggressive and condescending. And, and then I really look at that, you know, when I was going through the transformation, like, what is that about? And again, you tell yourself it's 
I'm protecting the truth and I'm protecting science, but at some point you have to look at it and be like, but why am I having such an emotional reaction to this? And you know, it takes, it takes a long time or someone has to just tell you as they did in my case, oh, your identity is tied up with this. So, you know, you feel threatened (laughs) and then you're suddenly like, oh, it's very simple, but oh, I get it. That's why I'm having an emotional reaction to it. Otherwise, you know, I would just be like, okay, (laughs) you have your view and I have mine. So I, th- I I do think that's true. And I think when you see very emotional reactions to things at the counter, which I don't even think these things necessarily counter science at all, but in people's minds, they do. I'm like, it's, it's a lot of it's ego. And, you know, it is kind of, you're like, oh, my work, you know, it is, you're like, oh, the work I'm doing, you're basically, you know, attacking. And sometimes I still feel that way. Like, you know, these, these behavioral patterns are hard to overcome and takes a while to rewire. So sometimes when people like will credit even though I'm going around criticizing <laughs> the way science is done but when other people do it I do sometimes get like I'll still revert back and be like well you know I mean we're doing the best we can right, <laughs> right, right. Right. so yeah well I I, I want to go into the journey that you took and you mentioned the a, a crisis I I, I do want to discuss these but I think it's also something that you write and I think it's important to bring in right now is that even though you've undergone this journey, you do not reject like the scientific method. The scientific method is still one of the best ways that we have of determining truth. But I think now you're kind of coming from a position that's like, well, yes, it's one of the best ways, but it's not the only way. Yeah. I just don't view it as the only, it's still a great way. I mean, obviously we're still making advancements in everything, but I think that and this is, I was just listening to a podcast this morning that I was so excited that I heard other people saying it because it's how I had been thinking about it, but certain things like psychedelics now that we're having this renaissance, you know, they, they kind of show us that we, because they're so complicated, these experiences, right? And it's, it's, it's become easy for us to dismiss these subject, subjective experiences because it's easier, <laughs> It's, mm. We can't account for it. We can't explain it and we can't measure it. So it's so messy. Uh, it's just so much easier to just ignore it. But but you're ignoring half of or more than half of somebody's experience. And it's like, it's it's silly when when I'm when I'm thinking of it now in this way. But when you're in it, you you really you're like, well, you know, we can't we can't verify that you had that experience. And and I like I kind of I still get it. Like you, you want something objective, but the nature of being human is subjective. Right. So it's like, yes, the scientific method is great to measure external things, be objective, whatever. It's useful to us for technological, biomedical advancement. But when it comes to, you know, the things that make us human, it's it you you can't measure everything with a double blind clinical randomized like placebo, whatever trial. You can't. Right, right. And so when we box, I think we're just boxing ourselves in by that. And that really is the language, you know, in medicine and, and science, like it, was it a controlled study? Was it a double blind study? Like, it's like the only way to be, to, that people will accept results. And I think that's wrong (laughs) because the laboratory conditions are so different from normal everyday reality that it doesn't even make logical sense to say that it's like, it's illogical to say that because as soon as you take something out of the lab, it's a totally different thing. We know that when subjects come in, they're like nervous or interacting with the researchers They're not even in, you know, a normal environment. Like we're not even getting their normal behavior but we're still basing our results off of it. So it, it doesn't make sense. And we're just boxing ourselves in for no reason, saying that that's the only acceptable method to determine if, you know, if something's true or not. Right. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things I brought up to the UCLA neuroscientists that I was speaking with about the sleep study is like, that wasn't my normal sleeping. That's not how I sleep. I, you know, I, I'm not at home. I'm not in bed <laughs> and this yeah, exactly. can't replicate, you know, what, what was actually happening. Yeah. No, really. And like, you know, neuroimaging studies, like, I don't know if you've ever been in an MRI. It's like one of the most unpleasant experiences you can <laughs> undergo. It's yeah. small space. It's loud. It's cold. You're in there for so long. You're not supposed to move at all. You know, it's like terribly uncomfortable and we're just, and we base all of our, our 
understanding of uh, allegedly the brain, brain regions that are activated from these extremely unnatural conditions that someone is in. Right. So, I yeah. mean, I just think, yeah, it's 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 a shame that that's where the the field is at because it would make more sense to say we should have randomized blind clinical trials, whatever. But we also need more naturalistic, more pragmatic trials, thing, and then combine them and see, right. you know, like because it just it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, and we'll come back to this a little bit, but let me ask you about what initiated this change what got you from the person you were to the person you are now yeah so <laughs> let's see i i was i always had these thoughts about science by the way these were already kind of already there but which is why i never wanted to to like be a, a faculty member right like i never wanted to write grants and do MRI research forever because I just didn't think it was really going to ultimately help us understand the brain. But what happened for me is, yeah, I mean, graduated, I was doing the normal things postdoc. And then I, I went, I got this research scientist gig at a, one of these labs at USC. And, you know, everything was like what I was supposed to be doing. And the work was kind of interesting, but I wasn't that, that in, happy really that fulfilled and then in the background of all that my I'm Persian so my cultural heritage is Persian and in our family in the we have a tradition of using coffee grounds these Armenian or Turkish coffee grounds to you dry them they create pictures and if you have, you're lucky enough to have some sort of intuitive reader they can look in the cup and divine your past, present, future. And so it's in our culture and my grandmother used to do it and my mom learned from her mom. So my mom would do it in the background. I never paid attention to it. I didn't even know what was going on. Actually, <laughs> thinking back, it's funny. I'm like, they would drink a lot of coffee, but I had no idea what was going on. And then when I was in grad school, my I, my parents live in LA and I was in LA. So I would go home on the weekends and she would just, I would have coffee with her and she would absentmindedly just start reading for me. And I didn't really... It was just a bonding moment and I let her do it. But I started noticing over the years that, that she was more right than she was wrong. And she would just see things like, you know, call out things like, and she would say things months in advance so that I would be like, that's, you know, not going to happen. Like, oh, it looks like you might switch offices or something like that, where we weren't expecting to switch offices. And then months later, like <laughs> suddenly we're switching offices and I'm like, what? how did she know that? So like, I, there were a lot of things like that that made me like get, like I paid attention to the readings. I took copious notes. I never, but I couldn't reconcile it with science. I couldn't explain it with science. So I just lived in cognitive dissonance separate. I was just like, all right, well, there's coffee and then there's <laughs> science. And then in 2016, she saw this, this really big event coming. She was like, oh, you're going to get some really bad news. And she never said things like that. And she saw this weeks in advance, again, just so many six five or six weeks in advance and she kept seeing it every week and she was being weird you know like I know my mom <laughs> and she was getting really weird and I was like what is it that you're seeing but she wouldn't tell me because she didn't want to worry me before it happened in case it didn't happen so weeks later I found out one of our professors was killed by one of the students in our program and it was terrible obviously it was and I knew him and I had he had helped me on one of my dissertation experiments and, and I remember just being like, I had already, already the coffee, I knew it worked, but this event, you know, it was very upsetting because it was like a life this time, you know, it was a very emotional event. And so I was very shook by not only the event, but that she had seen it. And I just couldn't get past like, like, how could we be sitting here five weeks before it happened? <laughs> and she saw it like, how, how, how I couldn't understand and, and why, like, was it fate or death? Is there such a thing? Like I never really thought about that before, but for some reason that kept coming up in my mind. I didn't do anything at that time. Cause I think I was just starting a new job. I was kind of in grief and just like whatever, but it planted a seed. And then two years later, 
she, my mom was reading again and she, she saw this relationship coming. And I, like I said, I wasn't in a great place, like super fulfilled. So I thought, oh, great, this will make me happy. And then it, it came and it was not that great. So it ended. And then my mom, you know, had said, all the details were right about everything, but she was like, oh, it'll be a positive thing for you. And, and I remember when we broke up, I was like, this is not positive. You were wrong. How could you, why are you always right? And this is wrong. And, and, and then I was just kind of lost. It was like the dark soul of the night because, or did I say that right? Dark night of the soul, because I was not in a great place to begin with. And so, you know, I was just, it was like the last push, like off the cliff. And so there was like, despair for the first time ever like I lost all hope and optimism and I really was like what is the point of all of this of this life and what do these readings have to do with it you know and so then since I was so well actually I was just too sad for a while to do anything so I just moped around for a while but when I came out of that a little bit one of my friends had gone through something similar and she had gone to psychics for comfort and she's like oh let's go to this lady I I know who's really good you know maybe she'll make you feel better or whatever so and I was like oh I'm not gonna go to a psychic you know I'm a scientist but then I was like okay well my mom reads and I'm desperate so I'll just go and see what she says and the lady was really good you know she saw things like I mean it just create you know just really accurate things specific she was right on numerous variables about situations and I was just really weirded out and blown away and got more curious and so my friends and I started kind of doing this fun experiment just for us where we would go and get readings and swap readings just to see if they were giving vague general readings to everyone but they weren't they were very specific to each of us and we did this over you know almost I think for a year and so then I just got really interested in it like but I, again, I didn't, I didn't think anyone studied it. I didn't think you could look it up or do research on it. I thought that this was just a thing that people do. And I don't, I didn't take it seriously until I think I would, oh, this was what happened. I was, so they also in the readings, they would talk about karma and reincarnation and soul lessons and stuff like that. And I was like, I don't believe in that whatever I, I just didn't have a framework so I, I didn't even hear it when they would say it it would just bounce off my brain and then yeah serendipitously I was listening to Chelsea Handler's podcast and she's you know not woo woo like she doesn't <laughs> believe in any of that stuff but she had Laurel and Jackson on who's a psychic medium and Laurel and Jackson starts talking about the spiritual framework about earth as a school and soul lessons and I remember I just was like, whoa, 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 I've heard this before. This is weird. So I tuned in and I was just wrote it down because I was like, oh, maybe this will help me make sense of the readings. And then she mentioned that she had participated in science experiments where she let researchers record her brain. And then her and Chelsea mentioned that the book, Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss. And so, and they didn't say what it was. They just said it's a psychiatrist case study. So I went and ordered it thinking it was like a, just a normal psychiatry book and it arrives and it's a past life progression book, but I didn't even know what that meant. But so when I was reading it, I was like, what am I reading? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what I was reading, but I read it. And, you know, in the book, he talks about a, how he gets this, you know, verified veridical information through his hypnotized patient about his life, but there's no way she could know. And then he, again, describes the spiritual framework. And so I was like really confused about this this book because I'm like this is like a Columbia Yale trained psychiatrist and he's and I was like what is going on this like this spiritual framework everyone keeps talking about and I was like could it possibly be true and you know is and then he so then I started doing reading so then I was like oh, I gotta know so I started reading a lot of literature that was and that was a tip that was like the point where I I just got interested because the spiritual framework kind of helped me and I, I didn't think it was real. Like I didn't really think it was, and I was kind of just approaching it as a, you know, in a time of desperation of, oh, could it help me at least reframe the way I'm thinking about things? And it did help because I did go back and look at my, the readings from the intuitives and they'd be like, this is a, you know, they would explain it. This is a karmic thing. And they would explain why things happened. And it helped me understand and accept things. And then when I went to I reached out to the Winbridge Research Center, which is where Laurel and Jackson had been certified and where she had done the studies that she mentioned. 
And then the one of the co-founders gave me this huge reading list. And he's like, there's been so much research done on psychic or psi phenomena by the US government for you know over a hundred years. There's so many papers. And so I was, so then that launched the actual like, let me go read about this and learn so I don't keep bothering people with my questions and acting like I'm the first person to discover this. And when I, yeah, dove into the all the literature, I was just blown away that there was so much evidence. And for something that I, yeah, I thought was like a, you know, cultural thing that I was probably making meaning out of myself because that's what I was taught to believe. So that, that was the thing. And then, I, I, well, I guess I'll stop there and see if you have any... <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, no, I think it's an amazing journey. And I think you can be forgiven thinking that you were the only one to kind of stumble across this because it's not, I don't think it's just in science. I think that, you know, one of the, you know, I teach and one of the courses I teach is critical thinking and logic. And in the textbooks I use, they always say, there's just no evidence for any of this yes. and it's just false. And, you know, I've had this ongoing curiosity and so I've done reading on the, you know, so I, I, I understand, you know, the work of Dean Radin and the Woodbridge Institute, Ian Stevenson and whatnot, because my, my starting place was always the spirituality, but I knew that there were scientific studies with all of these things. And it just occurred to me that, what we're doing with our students and like critical thinking is a required course for most students. It's like, we're just indoctrinating them. Yeah. You know, and that's not what critical thinking is supposed to be. (laughs) It's supposed to be looking at something. And this is one of the reasons why I really liked your book, because one of the things you write in this is the, this is a direct quote. The meaning of science is not to be skeptical, but to be open, inquisitive, curious, and always striving for the best explanation of a phenomenon. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But And you're right. When I went to, oh, I just had accepted the narrative in mainstream culture and mainstream science, which is that there's been no evidence that paranormal or parapsychological things occur that they've been investigated and debunked and and even today when I would just starting this is another one of these learning moments I'm gonna have to (laughs) what I'm talking about is with people like I've spent years like at this point reading scientific papers speaking to the researchers reading their books like you know and then they'll you know I'll talk to someone and then they'll send me one article about how like a seance was debunked you know after our conversation and I'm like okay like I'm getting annoyed because (laughs) okay but and I get it because that's probably what I would have done and that's the narrative it's like so strong in the culture but you you know you kind of want to scream and be like like there's there's a lot like you said critical thinking like do you really think this one article is a is a good argument for a whole entire phenomena Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know or like do, do you really think that the majority of humans who believe in this stuff, which is like the majority of humans (laughs) across all cultures and all of time are that dumb that we're not able to like discern cause and effect or, you know, relate things. But that really is what we're taught. And that is the narrative is that we misperceive things. We misconstrue things. We want to find meaning. So we find meaning. And while those things are true, it doesn't make the other things untrue. It doesn't make it untrue that you can have a dream that comes true exactly as you saw it the next day. So it is, it's a very difficult thing to come up against. It takes a lot of tenacity. Yeah, for sure. Now, as you were exploring all of these different phenomena, and I'm, I'm going to resist referring to them as paranormal because you also write in the book, you don't like that. You don't like that word. Was there something that you realize that there was like a moment of no going back. I had so much going back and forth in my mind. It was like excruciating. I couldn't fully accept it because it was the indoctrination is training runs deep. My first turning point was kind of the Stargate stuff 
just because I read the papers, I read the books and I spoke to them, the physicists who did it. And they told me these incredible stories. And at that point, I wasn't writing a book or anything. I was just like a person reaching out to understand it for myself. They didn't need to speak with me. You know, I find it hard to believe. Can you, Sorry, yeah. the, can you say what the Stargate? Oh, yeah. The, the government funded for like 20 plus years research into psychic phenomena. So they had these and it was funded by NASA first, then the CIA, then in army intelligence or defense intelligence. But it was so successful that it went from program to program, went over 20 plus years and they would use really gifted psychics initially and give them like a coordinate, a latitude and longitude coordinate and have them give their impressions of what they perceive. And it, it was found to be like statistically above chance accurate. And they had, you know, like hundreds, thousands of trials, hundreds of experiments. And then it was so good that they ended up training people in the army to do it. And they used it operationally in the military. This is so, and so well-documented, but I, a lot of people don't like things from the government because they're just like, oh, it's misinformation. But for me personally, since you're asking me, <laughs> one of my turning points was that, because I was just like, I mean, I just think it would have to be <laughs> like a monumental, like fraud for like these people to, I don't know, live in that way and lie to someone like me even, you know, right, but, right. but better than that, the papers speak for themselves. I mean, they published in nature, they published in the IEEE, the engineering journal that, so that one was one of the first turning points where I was like, Ooh, okay. So psychic phenomena is real. And, but I, so, but surprisingly, I still go, I still went back and forth for a long time because that's how deep it goes. And then, and then my personal experiences really, really sealed the deal for me. Like I've always had precognitive dreams, but since I've been on this journey, they've like, <laughs> like times 100 have <laughs> been going on. And it's just to the point where it's undeniable, you know, and also in readings I've had, you know, I've, I've had so many intuitive readings at this point out of curiosity just like I'm so curious at the way the reading readers are different and I've had them say things that like specific names of things in my life and people that are not common names <laughs> like so they've proved it to me in in so many ways and I actually have a friend who's super intuitive and he's the one who like was the final, final nail in the coffin because he's so intuitive. And I, and like, now we're really close, but we weren't that close before. And I would speak to him and he would just, it was like, he was in my place with me every day. Like he knew everything. And it's just, you can't explain that with like scientifically with statistics. I, like, I can't guess that. I can't guess what your day is like and get all the variables, right. Which he could do. And so it's like the science is great because that's what you have to use, unfortunately, to talk to other people about it. But the personal experiences are the ones that are the powerful ones that give you goosebumps, that move your emotions, that are meaningful for you, that really convince you, you know? Mm, okay. All right. Yeah. And I think those are still really important. Again, it gets back to this idea of the subjectivity of everything, but it's interesting because a lot of this, especially with the precognitive dreams, I've had a couple of guests on that have written about precognitive dreams, Eric Wargo, who's a science writer uh, yeah. and Gary Lockman. And I just spoke with someone, Bernard Beitman. I think I got his oh, name yeah. right. I, I know. Um, him. Yeah. And he wasn't really writing about precognitive dreams so much, although it was partly part of his work in Meaningful Coincidences. But what everyone recognizes is that precognitive dreams violate physics as we understand it. Mm -hmm. You know, because physics is supposed to be, you know, that causal mechanism that time moves forward. So right. we should not be able to have knowledge of something before the arrow of time gets there <laughs> yeah but I, I understand that's the argument against it but i also understand there's a lot of physicists who don't think that physics is finalized or solved wow. and right. so again i think we're just going to box ourselves in if we say violates the laws of physics period right, right. It's like instead of deciding what the you know, I, I, 
it's like you, you, you have to, you have to, it's what I say in the book, you have to throw out this outlier evidence mm -hmm. then right. because it doesn't fit your model, but maybe right. your model's wrong. <laughs> like what, right, right. what makes you think we have all the, and I, and then I'm not even saying that because I'm not a physicist, I don't know, but I know there are physicists right. and philosophers and cosmologists who have alternative models that mm -hmm. incorporate more unexplained evidence than our current models do. So I'm not bothered by that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's something that I always think about with all of this is, and I think this is very pertinent to your work and what you've been saying is Thomas Kuhn in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, you know, that science operates from a paradigm mm -hmm. and the current paradigm is that scientific materialism. Mm -hmm. And he writes about that what shifts the paradigms are always anomalies something that the science can't explain or answer for. Mm -hmm. And it is in the attempt to explain or answer those anomalies that you then get a new paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've long thought that the anomaly that is going to shift the paradigm is consciousness. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that's why I... I mean, that's what I was realizing as I was going through this is we just conveniently ignore these things we can't explain because if we, if we don't, we're going to have, it's a lot of, it's going to be a lot of work <laughs> and it's a lot of, um, I mean, at the time, actually, before I found the other philosophies and other models of the universe and, oh my gosh, it was so hard for me to even understand consciousness. And like, I would read these things and say, consciousness is fundamental. And I'd be like, wow, what does that even mean? Because yeah. <laughs> right. that's what, we don't even know what consciousness is. Right. And it was really hard to get my mind around that one as a neuroscientist. I mean, that was the last thing to open to me was the possibility that consciousness extends beyond the brain. Like in the beginning, I was more about just the psychic phenomena, like, oh, information is coming in, your brain processes it, but we just can't measure whatever signal it is. So I was still within a materialist framework, but yeah, the, the, the worldview flip was harder and came later. And, but eventually I got there because I just kept learning more and reading more about these, these cases, these things that we, that we ignore. And then I really started to think, well, what if, I just like allowed, well, what if, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, this model makes more sense, right, right, right. <laughs> incorporates more, you know, and I don't have one model I, I believe in or think is accurate. I don't, I've actually given up on that. I, I don't right. even know. I just know I don't know anything <laughs> now, but, but I just know the whatever we got going now, it doesn't explain everything. So, and I understand that it's scary to, to update it but it's cowardly not to. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, and one of the things I was thinking while reading your book and thinking about Thomas Kuhn and his work is that by rejecting and not even acknowledging all of the studies that have been done on Psy, science can't progress. Mm -hmm. It's holding itself back. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true too. I think that's part of my, well, when I was right, when I was going through this, I was thinking, you know, once I removed those barriers from my own mind and thought, okay, well, what if this is all true or what if, you know, and I thought, well, what does that mean for the way we do science and what does it mean for science? And yeah, I was like, this, this is, this is actually terrible that we don't include all of this stuff because we, we really don't have an understanding of what it is we're dealing with. And I felt that way too, when I, I tried, I feel the same way about psychedelics or any kind of mystical experience, because now that I've experienced those states, I can't even imagine. And I, I, I write a newsletter on psychedelics and I, and I wrote an art, like one of the issues on this, cause I really think it's so true. I'm like, how can you be a neuroscientist? How can you study the brain and consciousness and mind and not be familiar with those kinds of states. Right. Like you're looking at one kind of state, everyday consciousness and saying, I'm going to define human experience. It's, it's, 
it's like I'm going to define like weather and only look at sunny days. Right. So right. it's you have one one type of experience. It's like you don't even know what you are measuring. It's so interesting. You know, it's hard to put into words too. I don't even know if I'm explaining it correctly. But so I, I really think, yeah, like I started viewing it as we're we're so lim we're limiting ourselves and we're so limited. And of course, we're not making progress. You know, <laughs> like yeah, we're making progress, but imagine if we tapped into you know and accepted all that other evidence there would be so many new permutations and directions to go and possible innovations to be had and how how sad that we aren't doing that yeah well and it's interesting because you know i don't know if you're familiar with william james and his book the varieties of religious experience yeah but he's got that chapter on mysticism and i've read this so many times in classes, I should have it memorized, but it's exactly what you were just saying. You know, he dosed himself with nitrous oxide in order to give himself that mystical experience. And, you know, he says that, you know, we walk through life in this ordinary waking consciousness, but just apply the appropriate stimulus and it just opens up to other realities. And he says that no account of the universe will be complete without them. It's true. And I don't think, I'm so glad that we are having this psychedelic renaissance of sorts, whatever, because, so like, yeah, like one of, one of my, because we need it. So one of my mm -hmm. neuroscientist friends and I did had a powerful psychedelic experience together. And like, we, we just, you know, we, we just came out of it. Like, what were we even doing before? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, what were we even studying? And, and then the unfortunate thing is you can't put it in words. So you really have to have experience of it. So it's like, you, I, I wish every nerd, I know it's not for everyone, but I wish every neuroscientist could experience those states because you, it just changes you because then you see all the different ways that you're like when people say from psychedelic states, things like I saw ultimate reality. If you haven't experienced that, you dismiss it and you're like, oh, well, maybe it's because the it was such salient stimuli, stimuli that like your brain defined it as real. Like you start coming up with these, these explanations, which may or may not be true, but when you experience it. You're like, oh no, I know what I experienced. Right, right, right. <laughs> like yeah. I know. And when you know you say you became the universe, you're not like I saw the universe, like I became it. And right. and it's that's an interesting thing for neuroscientists. What does that mean? Became, mm. you know, because we're embodied the way we relate to our environment and have distinctions between self and other. I mean, like the way we study these things in the lab pales in comparison to, <laughs> to, yeah. to an experience like that. Yeah. 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 We have a long way to go, I think, with science and what yeah. we study and how we study it. And and I'm also very happy to see this psychedelic renaissance for a number of reasons, you know, not just for healing, because I think they have great healing potentials, but also philosophically yeah. um, about these questions of ultimate reality and spirituality. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, yeah. I, I, me too. And I, I didn't get to write about that in the book because I didn't realized all this until later, but I write about it in my newsletter. Yeah, I started to think about these altered states of consciousness as kind of like the perfect place where we encounter like personal healing, like you said, but the transpersonal and the paranormal, and then also the spiritual. And so where all these three things come together, because in my journey, it was like, sometimes hard to be like, okay, well, I'm interested in psychic phenomena, which is an unexplained anomalous thing. But then now I'm interested in this spiritual framework or thinking about spirituality and consciousness. How does that relate back? And that, you know, they were all separate in my mind. And then I had the personal healing journey. And then I just realized I was like, oh, these altered states where I'm encountering, like I encounter all these things, then mm -hmm. they're like the linchpin of all of it. And so it became easier to like, think about it in that way that these states are super important because it's not it's not me referencing a scientific study that you haven't read and don't understand or even an you know it's like you go in and you experience it and and you suddenly get it you understand right right, right. so i know we're starting to run out of time but i do have a couple more questions for you sure. uh, one is that you have undergone this transformation this transformative journey and i know that 
the scholar Jeffrey Kripal has written about this. I think he calls it the flip. Have you met other scientists that have undergone similar journeys? Yeah, I've had some people reach out to me actually, and I'm sure there'll be more, but I've had some neuros are they all neuro? Yeah, all neuroscientists so far reach out to me telling me their crazy experiences and how they were skeptical or how they never believed in this stuff. And then whatever happened to them happened. And now they're all about like non-duality. <laughs> I mean, each of, them is, each of them is different. They're all different stories, but yeah, I've had numerous people reach out and some of them are further along in their journeys. So they're more, I mean, they know more than I do. They're more grounded. And then others are earlier and they're you can tell like they're excited to have someone to talk to like they feel like I felt lost and confused and alone and so they're like excited to have someone to talk to about it so yeah I've I've, I've definitely had people reach out to me I'm sure there's plenty more <laughs> like right. I mean everyone that I in the book I interviewed some of my scientist colleagues there and I interviewed a bunch more that I didn't put in the book but all a lot of them had stories they all had stories you know from their lives anomalous things that they couldn't explain and that we would kind of we would share those and you know they they just weren't as hung up on it like they okay. weren't in the midst of a transformation right, right. but they all had they had them and I think for some people it's just stronger for whatever reason like like me like it ends up flipping you but but I think most people have them yeah. Do you see any evidence of this informing the research in neuroscience going uh, forward? No. The only thing that 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 gives me any hope is that again, the psychedelic renaissance has caused a few new research centers to be opened that are focused on consciousness. All that research does tend to be just more within the traditional bounds right now of where we are in science. But you never know, you know, as, as that research goes on, where it'll go. So that's the one I, I would say area of hope. Okay. All right. Another question for you. I'm just curious because your mother reading the coffee grounds was so central to the start of this. Has your mom read your book? <laughs> My mom is like a 73 year old Persian lady. So <laughs> she, has, she hasn't read the book in full. She's read okay. the beginning part of it, but yeah. not the like later science parts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, and, and I'm curious, and if this is too personal, you can just say, I'm not going to answer that, but I'm curious about the conversations that you may have had with your mom as you've undergone this journey. Oh yeah. She, so my mom's always been spiritual. Mm -hmm. So she's always interpreted her dreams she's always believed in the coffee. She believes in spiritual beings. Mm -hmm. And so those aspects that she already believes in, we've had a great time talking about. And, and she, now I call her, you know, with my dreams or now she tells me her, like, so there, there's been that beautiful extension of our relationship with the like, re with things that she doesn't believe in. <laughs> she just doesn't believe it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Although she has slowly like opened somewhat to the possibility, yeah. but yeah. And I found that to be with a lot of people that, that, that people draw boundaries kind of arbitrarily, or I mean, I'm sure it's not arbitrarily in their mind, but yeah. they'll be like, oh, I believe in psychic phenomena, but I don't believe in that karma stuff, or right, right, right. I believe in magic but I don't believe in astrology or I don't know like people just draw these arbitrary lines and I feel like my mom's kind of like doesn't believe in reincarnation but once in a while she'll say something like oh maybe I was that in a past life and I'll be like oh well wow well. <laughs> yeah well I, I understand the drawing of the boundaries because I do that myself um, mm -hmm. you know I explore a lot of things on this podcast and I'm open to a lot of different ideas and I understand with, especially with consciousness, once you start exploring how vast that is, it does bring in all of these other things, you know, like spiritual beings and whatnot. But I have, and this is one of the boundaries, and I have a, one of my best friends chides me about this all the time because I put a limit on fairies in <laughs> the fae. <laughs> And, and the joke is I am not going to talk to anyone who is going to tell me about the fairy king. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. But Same I also, I intuitive in the book. <laughs> yeah. But I, I also know that there's a part of me. I have to, 
I don't know. I don't know. And yeah, I think that's way, the issue of spirituality, right? Yeah. The way I had that, I mean, I had that issue too. Like, oh, I, when I was doing this, I think people are trying to talk to me about UFOs, like on the journey. And I was like, please stop. I do not care about UFOs. I do not want to hear about them. I'm just not interested. And it took me to co go to Jeff Kripal's work to yeah. see that it's it's all related. And yeah. I still don't really care about UFOs, UAPs, but whatever, I get that they're related. Mm -hmm. And I think the way I think of it now, which is like, who knows, this probably will change, but I do feel like our minds do interpret. And I do feel now like, I think asking is this or that real is the wrong question. Mm. And yeah, so when I hear things like that, like I, me too, I get uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, but I'm like, if someone mentions Bigfoot or something, I'll be like, okay, oh God. Mm -hmm. But now I see it as that's how they're interpreting right. something. Like right. there's not that it's not real, not that they didn't see that. I'm saying like they saw what they saw, but for whatever reason, it has appeared to them in this way. And when you yeah. strip, you know, physical reality of its boundaries and you look, if it's just energy, which we are, we are just machines that interpret energy, mm. then it's easier to understand for whatever reason, this person <laughs> interprets whatever kind of energy that is as a fairy, as Bigfoot right, 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 <laughs> or whatever. Right. But I get yeah, it too, because yeah. you're kind of like, you grow, yeah. you grow up in Western culture and those things are so outside of our mm -hmm. limits of acceptability. Yeah. Well, and I'm down with UFOs and I do know a lot of the work that is making connections between those and the folklore of fairies and whatnot. And I'm open to that, but there's just sometimes when someone's like, yeah, I was talking to the fairy king. I'm like, no, <laughs> but I, I know that's what I have to work through. Yeah. And, and take everything with a grain of salt, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. You do hear some really weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I do like this because your approach is, I think it would be fair to describe it as phenomenological, that you're saying, well, people have an experience. So let's look at the experience and yeah. that they're interpreting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Because I, I mean, I think I was so stuck on the, is this real or not question in the beginning. And, you know, I just am not interested in it anymore, I guess, yeah. but I understand that other people are still right, right. hung up on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the final questions for you, what do you have coming up next? What are you working on next? Good question. Well, I have a day job that I, I work with two developers and we we do some consulting and then we're, we're building something. And I write a newsletter, psychedelic or altered states of consciousness. And kind of what we were talking about, like how it's these states are the intersection of all these other things. So I do that. And then I'm actually, do you know the Institute of Noetic Sciences? Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. So I'm doing a little bit of writing for them okay. for their blog. I'm thinking about a second book. Okay. I did start writing a second book with a friend, but I'm not sure that that's going to be the next book actually. Okay. But yeah, I am, I am thinking about that, but the book just came out. So I'm a right. little a little bit yeah. just dealing with this this release and then yeah. kind of seeing seeing where that goes yeah and the book is out now right yes it's out now it came out last week okay yeah yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. yeah congratulations on that yeah. it really was a great read and it was a fun read and so i would highly recommend it to pretty much anyone who's interested in this topic thank you and i will put links in the show notes in the video description for it where can people go to find out more about you and maybe sign up for that newsletter yeah my website has everything it's mona sobani phd.com and you can sign up for the newsletter there. I try to post all my appearances and goings on there. Okay. So it's all there. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Mona, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with me. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope the book does phenomenally well. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. And that's a wrap on episode 54 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or watch this on Spotify. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. 
If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review, and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. Also, if you think a friend or family member would like this podcast, please share it with them. Right now, this is one of the best ways to help me with the podcast. I really do want to grow the audience. If you would like to support my work on Rebel Spirit Radio, I have a PayPal link set up if you would like to make a one-time donation. And yes, you can still be the first person to do so. That first person will get a special call out if you're okay with that and you will have my undying gratitude. You can find a link for PayPal in the show notes or video description. I will also be launching a Patreon within the next few weeks, so keep tuned for updates on that. As I keep saying, I've got big plans for Rebel Spirit beyond the Rebel Spirit Radio podcast. I do want to create more video content for the YouTube channel, including more book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. I'm also planning some live stream episodes. The first will be with returning guest Dr. Sharon Kogan, where she will offer a Jungian analysis and interpretation of dreams for participants. We're still working on scheduling this, but it will likely be near the end of October. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com. That way you'll be informed of all future live events. Implementing all of this is going to take time and resources, so anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.